If you take your Bibles, we'll be reading a number of texts, as this is a topical sermon, but a number of texts this morning, um, we will look at the many facets of our topic, uh, the biblical uh, doctrine of election, and so light of that, I'll read a number of texts, first being John chapter 6, John chapter 6, starting at verse 50. But before we hear from the Lord, from his word, let's go to him once more in prayer. Join your hearts to mine. Our dear Lord, we love your law. May it be the meditation, our, our meditation all day long. Blessed are you, our gracious Father, O Lord, whose love is revealed in your Son. O Lord, whose love is the delight of all life and whose word we love as the light of life. We ask, Father, pour out your spirit as we hear that word now, your word, and as we hear from you, that in meditating upon this word, that our hearts might be illumined in our days filled with peace and joy. We pray, Father, place that word in our minds that we might think rightly. Place it in our hearts that we might love in new and true ways. Touch our wills by your word, we pray, that we may submit our wills to your perfect will and that we would repent of our failure to do so. We pray, Lord, we praise you that you cleanse out from us all that is unclean and befouling to us. Help us, we pray, Lord, to hear and to learn. Speak, for your servants are listening. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. John chapter 6, starting at verse 41. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And then Jesus says in chapter, verse 65 of that same chapter, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then turning over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the opening verses of that epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Again, noticing there, to those who are elect exiles, according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. And then turning over, or back rather, to Romans chapter 8, a passage we looked at last week, Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. Uh, This is known to many of you as the golden chain of salvation. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he call, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then one last text. If you turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 13. Uh, just verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The word of our Lord, indeed the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. May he add his blessing to it. Well, this is our third sermon, the third sermon in our series on the doctrines of grace. Uh, the flower of grace, right, alluding to the acrostic tulip. Um, first, we looked at the very sad and very desperate state of man in his fallen condition. From the fall, because of our parents, our first parents' sin, we are what? Scripture tells us over and over. Ephesians 2, Titus uh, chapter 2. Um, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, bound to sin. Our nature is wicked. We are indeed free to do uh, a fallen man is free to do as he pleases, but he only and always pl- is pleased by sinning. Yes, people can often and do perform actions that seem good, right, in quotes, that seem civilly righteous in a kind of way like that. Even fallen humanity can do things that, according to our culture or according to outward appearances, seem to be good. But what's the problem then? Doesn't that undermine, Pastor, everything that you've been telling us for the last two weeks? Uh, Well, no, it doesn't. Because we have to uh, have a right understanding of what good is. What it is to do good works. And according to Scripture, there's a very specific definition or things that have to qualify as good works. And according to uh, the Word of God, for something to be good, it must come from true faith. It must be for God's glory, and it must be faithful to God's word. And the Bible goes on to explain the bad news for the unregenerate sinner in regard to good works. All of his supposed good works, all of his civilly righteous deeds are actually storing up wrath for themselves. And only one who was born from above, one who has been born again to newness of life, can do good. And from the one who hates God... For the one who hates God, who is in rebellion against God, he is bound to his sinful nature and will always uh, include with all of his works the so-called pound of sin-tainted flesh. And so we saw that bad news of the first petal of the acrostic tulip, the T, total depravity, the radical corruption of man. And the next petal we began to look at last week, the U of the tulip, unconditional election. And we began to look at the answer to that sad and desperate state of the totally depraved man. And the only way for man in this bad condition to have life was what? It was for our sovereign God to make it so. We began to see that that saving by our sovereign Lord, that mercy and grace that he extends is not conditioned by anything in the creature. Again, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, you might uh, consider turning to Ephesians chapter 1. Notice there this thoroughly Trinitarian salvation. Trinitarian salvation. 
uh, our triune God, salvation of his people. And it is one of the most beautiful passages in God's word. And we've looked at this text a number of times um, since I've been here at uh, Providence. But we see in this text, God decrees to save some of fallen humanity. And the Son accomplishes that salvation for those that the Father gives him. Right, Those whom he decreed so to be saved. And the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to the elect in time. Right? So before the creation of the world, into eternity future, salvation is all of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Right, And you see that it's talking about there. Praise to God the Father for his choosing in eternity past. And then we go on in verse 7. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Right? And so in this section, we see praise to God the Son, that he has redeemed us in history past, right, on the cross. And then going on the last two verses there, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Right? And so here we have praise to God the Holy Spirit, that he has sealed, our per- that, that he has, uh, sealed us in our personal past, right? in time, applying the redemption bought by Christ, decreed by the Father to us when he saved us, right? that is, at our conversion. And so beginning from beginning to end, salvation is of our sovereign Lord. All of it. Election is God's choice for his own good pleasure. So he would be glorified in extending grace to save some. And it is unconditional, right? We looked at last week. Why? Because it does not depend on the will of man. It depends on the will of God. If it depended on the will of man, who would be saved? No one. No one would ever be saved. Why is that? Because sinful, rebellious man cannot and would not make a decision for God, for the God from whom he's running and, from, and whom he despises. But God is powerful enough to get a hold of whom he wills and to give them a new heart and a new nature that desires Christ and flees to Christ. And praise God, he does that very thing. He does that very thing. Remember in Acts 13, Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were appointed believed. That is amazing. 
It's incredible. It's powerful. That is certain and sure. Something indeed that should provoke, promote uh, praise right, and warmth in your heart and affection for this God who saves. And this morning we'll continue to look at unconditional election and we need to be sure that we are clear, clear on a few things that can arise when we look at God's sovereign grace and election. Uh, sadly, there are many who have been taught to have animosity towards these biblical doctrines, the doctrines of grace. Some have been taught that they are not biblical. That's why we're looking at so many passages to show you that they are indeed biblical. They come from Scripture. And to deny and have animus for these doctrines of God's grace, His amazing grace, is heartbreaking. Right? It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because this teaching so amplifies and so emphasizes God's mercy and grace and power and His love. Like the doctrines of grace highlight God's power and truly amazing grace. Anything that diminishes these things is reason for sorrow. Our pride and our arrogance shouldn't get in the way of the truth of God's word as well, either from those who deny it or for those who teach it. Right? Pride and arrogance should not get in the way of the truth of God's word. Um, I have a friend who used to say that Presbyterian Reformed people have the gift of argumentism. Right? And that wasn't meant as a compliment. Right? There's, there's such a, these are such awesome and exciting truths that sometimes it's hard to control ourselves. But we are commanded in Scripture to what? To speak the truth in love, with gentleness and respect. We're not better than others. Right? Our brothers and sisters of other branches of the family tree are not lesser than we are. They're not less important or less valuable than we are. We need to find ways always to love and always to convey love to all. And we want to be teachable. And we want to be teaching in ways that are loving and kind and tender. Right? This is important. We are to be Christ-like. We want to hold to the truth of God's word and reason and argue in love. We want to drill down into Scripture, submit to God's word, and be as consistent and faithful to that word as we possibly can. God cares how he's spoken of. Right? You, got, you, you realize this, right? We look at places like the end of Job, where the Lord said, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. Why? For you have not spoken of me what is right. right? His anger burns because they have not spoken of him, of the Lord, what is right. We want to speak what is right about the Lord. We want to speak truth, but always in love. Always in love. That's the commandment to us, right? Ephesians 4, always speak the truth in love. There's been a lack of this at times in history. And there have been stereotypes and there have been caricatures and accusations. Some have said uh, things like the teaching, uh, these teachings of the doctrines of grace, they militate against prayer. They militate against preaching. They militate against evangelism. And others have said that this is a complex doctrine. It's too much for normal people. It's only for theologians and scholars. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at these two questions these two accusations, right? Does unconditional election discourage action like prayer and preaching and witnessing? And then secondly, is, is unconditional election just for theologians and scholars? Or is it truth for all of God's people? This is what we're going to be looking at, starting with the first point. That first question, does this doctrine of God's sovereign election discourage actions like prayer and evangelism and preaching. This is what some have argued. 
And they, it goes something like this. They say, if unconditional election is true, then why pray for the lost? Why preach the gospel? Why evangelize? Why do those things if God has infallibly secured the elect anyway? Why go through the process? What we do can't change his sovereign will. I don't know if you've heard those objections or not, but thankfully, we don't have to go down uh, the road to those questions because we have God's word to instruct us. We have God's word to tell us, and God's word is not silent regarding these things, as we have began to see in the last two weeks. Um, Let's look at the practice of the Apostle Paul, for instance. Uh, Last time we looked um, more extensively at Romans chapter 9 and how boldly Paul set forth God's sovereignty and election in chapter 9, right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, right? And then to the challenge of that's not fair, he says, who are you to answer back to God? Who are you to answer back to the one, the, 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 the potter, what he does with the clay? It's his stuff. Right? We don't have time to look in all of, to revisit all of that in its entirety. But look, um, look at Romans 9, chapter 1, and, I'm sorry, 9, verses 1 and 2. And this, of course, comes on the heels of, of, of this declaration of the golden chain of redemption in chapter 8. Right? He ends chapter 8, and he talks about those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those who predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Then he speaks of the inseparable love of God in Christ Jesus for his people. Right? And then he says, the Bible says in uh, Romans 9, verses 1 and 2, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Right? And then he goes on to bracket this section in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Right? Look at the next chapter, Romans 10, verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so do you see this bracketing that Paul, he, he brackets this discussion of God's sovereignty, his sovereign election. He brackets it with the longing and grieving for and praying for Israel's salvation. You see that Paul doesn't seem to have any problem at all transitioning from God's sovereignty to prayer. And here are just a few reasons why God's sovereignty does not discourage or nullify prayer for Paul, the great apostle. Right? He's, as a mere man, as a finite creature, Paul didn't know who the elect were any more than you or I do. But he did know that God determined both the ends and the means. Both the ends and the means. God had determined the ends, right? Which are the salvation of the elect. But God also determined the means to save the elect. And what were those means? What are those means? The means are prayer and witness and preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the means to accomplish the ends. God ordains them both. And the truth is that confidence in, uh, the confidence in prayer's efficacy is grounded in the sovereign God who is able to save. It's not grounded in an impotent God who can only make salvation possible or potential and has to wait upon the creature, the supposed free will of the spiritually dead sinner. That's not what we see in Scripture. Paul prayed because he trusted in the sovereign God who could answer his prayers. And because it was the means of calling out the elect. It's the way God works. It's the way he determined to work. 
And in preaching the gospel, Paul was fully aware that his labors were involved with the process of calling out the elect, just as his prayers were. Election motivated Paul in his labors. It didn't give him a reason for some kind of indifference. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Right? Election gave Paul confidence and it gave Paul courage in the midst of this battle, of his labors. And when he was afraid, when he was fearful at Corinth and strongly opposed, you remember how God encouraged him to preach, right? If you're familiar with the book of Acts, it gives background to the epistles, right? And when he was, uh, when he was opposed and he was fearful at Corinth, God encouraged him in this way, Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He's saying, go preach. Go prayer. Don't be afraid. Speak. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. My people are out there. They will respond and come in. And the point is this, unconditional election does not discourage prayer or preaching because they are the means that God has ordained to accomplish his ends. Proverbs 21.31 says, the horse is prepared for battle. That's the means. But victory belongs to the Lord. That's the ends. So we see that sovereignty of God in election does not discourage prayer and preaching. Rather, what the Apostle Paul And with us, it is a stimulant that gives us confidence in our prayers and courage in our preaching and witness to the lost. It gives us confidence and courage. When we know that the goal of of God's election is the declaration and the telling forth of His glorious grace throughout all eternity, it encourages us to enter into the zeal that God has for His own name through prayer and through witness. This is what we mean when we talk about boasting in the Lord. Psalm 96, verses 2 and 3 says, Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works amongst all the peoples. You see the culmination of all these things. It's zeal and confidence and courage and passion and boldness. Action. These are all resultant from our sovereign Lord. His ways are sure. His decrees are certain. Right? Is, that, is that something that gives you confidence and courage? It should, brothers and sisters. We are motivated to prayer and to witness. We are confident without fail that God, our sovereign Lord, will work out his plan and bring his elect to Christ. And this brings us to the last question, the second question. Point number two, is this doctrine, is unconditional election just for theologians and scholars? Or is this truth for all of God's people? Yes, it is for all of God's people. All of us. And I hope this is becoming clear from what we've said even thus far in our study. It is not just for theologians. This marvelous truth is for all of God's people. Every one of you. 
It is not a complicated doctrine buried beneath the debris of philosophy and confusion. This gold, the doctrines of grace, don't require heavy machinery to excavate it out of the text. It is there and it is everywhere. As we saw with the words of our Lord Jesus, and as we saw with Luke, and as we saw with Paul, and as we saw with Isaiah last week, it runs like a steady stream through all of Scripture. It permeates all that we know about God. Our God is a sovereign God. He's sovereign. His grace is sovereign grace. When we grasp this glorious truth, when we grasp it, this truth of unconditional election, of God's sovereignty, it brings the greatness of God's sovereignty into crystal clarity. It clarifies for us who God is and the magnitude of his plan in saving his people. This doctrine humbles the creatures and it exalts the creator. The God we look to is not one who is struggling with his creation and attempting to redeem all he can while there's still time and struggling and hoping. It's not the God we see in scriptures. Rather, the God we see in scriptures is one, uh, the one that we look to is a sovereign God who is executing with power and certainty his plan throughout his creation. God will have his way. Praise God he will have his way. And he will reach all his goals in gathering together a people as glorious declarations of his grace to put on display for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a glorious thing, brothers and sisters. No, this doctrine of unconditional election, it is not a high doctrine just for theologians. It is food for all of God's people. It is wonderful food. It is satisfying. And when God's people read places like 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 30, uh, about the union of the believer to Christ, he says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Right? Because of him, not because of yourself, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. When God's people read verses like that, they realize that they are saved by his sovereign grace, not by some cooperative effort between themselves and God. It's because of him. Or when we read places like 2 Timothy chapter 1 that we looked at earlier, they realize that God's greatness and sovereignty and love and his power. <clears throat> Again, I'll start at verse 8, the end of verse 8. Uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. But share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who what? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ when? Before the ages began. Right? It's all there. It's all there. Unconditional election is the foundational, the granite, the bedrock reason why we give thanks to God for saving us. It is the reason why we would joyfully give ourselves <clears throat> to praise and worship and service in His name. God's sovereign grace changes how we see Him. It changes how we see not only him, but ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ. It changes how we see the work of the church in its teaching and worship and witness. It is by God's sovereign election that we understand what keeps grace, pure grace, free from the polluting and diluting mixture of human effort, which always looks for its own reasons to boast. Right? There's a reason that this comes up a number of places in the text. God knows our own hearts and our desire to take credit. It's by grace you've been saved, not of your works, that no one would boast. 
This doctrine is not just for theologians. Brothers and sisters, it is for his church. It is for his people. The people he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. As we go again, down from Mount Zion, down from corporate worship, this foretaste of glory, let us go revived in the gospel, confident in our Lord. And may this truth give confidence to our prayers. And may it give courage to our witness. May it give passion and zeal to our service. May it indeed prompt wholehearted thanksgiving and praise in our worship. The word grace is common in our circles. But being reminded this morning again of that second letter of the acrostic, TULIP, unconditional election, grace becomes what it should be, a hymn of thanksgiving and praise to our sovereign God. Let us always remember and delight in our Savior, Jesus, that one who gave his life for his people, indeed for those whom the Father gave him, the chosen of God. May we afresh be put in our place by this wonderful truth. And may we render thanks and praise to our glorious Lord, again, all to the praise of his glory. Amen.